Hey there, special educator. Before we dive into today's episode, I have something exciting to share with you. If you've ever struggled with writing impact statements for your IEPs, and let's be honest here, what special educator hasn't found themselves at some point staring at a blank box and a blinking cursor wondering what in the world to type? My free guide is just what you need to get those brain juices flowing. Introducing Impact Statement Mastery, your step-by-step guide to writing personalized IEPs. This free guide is designed to help you craft impactful, personalized statements with ease. You'll get expert tips and strategies, easy-to-follow formats, and real-life examples that bring theory to life. It's absolutely free and a must-have for every special education teacher and related service provider. To get your copy, just visit www.spedprepacademy.com slash impact statements, or check the link in the episode description. Now let's get started with today's episode. You're listening to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. Your host, Jennifer Hofferberg, is an award-winning veteran special educator who shares her experience, knowledge, and passion to help other special educators survive and thrive in this profession. Join her and other guests as they share tips and tricks of the trade for the ever-crazy, completely overwhelming, laugh-so-you-don't-cry profession of being a special education teacher. Hey there, welcome back to episode 123 of the SPED Prep Academy podcast. In today's episode, Lane, a special educator and transition specialist with almost 15 years of experience, discusses the importance of affirming neurodiversity in the classroom. She defines neurodiversity as the natural diversity of human brains and explains that the idea of air quote normal or healthy brain is a social construct. Lane also emphasizes the need for respectful terminology, awareness of sensory differences, and the adaptation of teaching methods to make space for all learners. She stresses that instead of trying to change a student's behavior to appear more neurotypical, teachers should focus on helping students reach goals surrounding self-advocacy, boundaries, communication, self-determination, and social problem-solving. Lane also advocates for teaching students about their disabilities to help them better understand themselves. And lastly, she suggests that training paraprofessionals to affirm student differences is crucial and can make a significant difference in the classroom. I had such a nice chat with Lane, and I can't wait for you to hear everything that she has to share. Well, hey there, Lane. Welcome to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get started, would you introduce yourself and share about your journey within the field of special education? Sure. Um, So my name is Lane. I run Transition Abilities. Um, I'm a special educator and transition specialist. So that means I have my my master's in transition leadership. Um, So I've been working in the field for almost 15 years. Um, My first job was actually working at a residential school with neurodivergent teenagers and so I actually ended up starting in the transition field right away, which I think is a little unusual. Um, but I fell in love right away. So that was that was lucky for me. Um, so I worked there during college for about four years. Um, and then I started working at a residential program in a hospital, helping autistic kids and teenagers. Um, and it was there that I really started to get interested in how the brain works and, you know, how all of us are different. Um, and... I didn't know it at the time because I wasn't diagnosed yet, but I found out that I'm also neurodivergent. Um, So I think I just became fascinated with how vast the spectrum of neurodivergence is. And um, that led to me continuing in the field. So after, let's see, after that, I moved on to work at a public school. 
And that's where I was the past 10 years. Um, and the public school, in the public school, I helped out with the transition program there. That's so interesting that you realized and were diagnosed after you started working within this field. I would imagine that sharing that story with students you work with would help them see that their future could be whatever they wanted it to be. So it's so neat that you have that connection with them that so many others would not have. And that ties in nicely with what I want to talk with you about today, and that is affirming neurodiversity. But before we get into those questions, would you just sum up what the word neurodiversity means? Because I know that it's becoming a more and more common term, but as a special education teacher and an instructional coach, it's not a word that I use on a regular basis. So I I imagine that some of my listeners might not use it as well. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that because um, I didn't use the word either until I, <laughs> I started transition abilities where I, I make curriculum for other transition teachers. And so I started a social media. And once I got onto Instagram and Facebook and I was um, following some other neurodivergent creators, I started hearing this word over and over again. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a word I was taught in grad school or undergrad or anything. Um, sounds similar to you. So I kind of learned by following other, you know, autistic adults and neurodivergent adults that are on social media that are always talking about these topics. Um, but in a nutshell, neurodiversity just refers to the natural diversity in our brains and our brains as humans. So just like we all have different fingerprints, everyone's brain is unique. Um, so that's what neurodiversity means. Um, and it was coined by, in the 90s by Judy Singer. But I think because of social media, people are talking about it more now. You know, I... Sometimes you think you hear neurotypical where a, it's a typical brain, but like you said, everyone's different. So I don't even know if there is typical, you know, I I feel like my husband is neurodiverse. Sometimes I, I tease him because he's, he's, he's so much different than, than I am. But honestly, you really, can you say what is typical? So that's, that's very interesting. So if we're having a conversation about affirming neurodiversity, it can be assumed that the opposite has to be true as well. If, it wasn't affirmed or accepted at some point. So why is it important to affirm students who are displaying stimming, for example? Um, so exactly like you just said, there is no normal, there is no typical. I completely agree with you. Um, so since we're not assuming that any brains are normal while other brains are abnormal, that's where neurodiversity comes in. So we're moving away from that like pathologizing paradigm. And instead of seeing you know variations in typicality in your brain, as a deficit that needs to be like fixed or, um, you know, changed in some way to appear more neurotypical. Instead of doing that, we're trying to um, recognize that differences in brains are a natural form of diversity and should be celebrated. Um, so you're right. In the past, I think that um, we've had more of that medical model. We've been taught like, oh, you know, autistic students won't look you in the eyes. Like we need to fix that. We need to make sure Autistic people are looking you right in the eyes so that they're more neurotypical so they can get a job interview. You know, we're thinking about adults and things like that. Um, but now the shift is more towards recognizing that different neurotypes are acceptable and appropriate and that maybe it's society that needs to change a little bit um, because it's not that's not true. You know, people can be different and that can be OK. So I like you say society needs to change a little bit. That is so true. So how can educators then be sure to use respectful terminology during their day? Yeah, so um, the special ed field is full of passionate educators. And so I'm always hesitant about answering this question a little bit because I think that there's no one right way to speak about anything. Like you just heard me, I'm saying autistic students. I'm using identity first mm -hmm. language. I also say disabled people. Um, the reason I do that personally is because I have I am disabled, I am neurodivergent, and I accept that that's part of my identity, and I'm not 
ashamed of it. And I, you know, I'm talking about it on this podcast. I, I'm proud of it. I think that it's, I think it's neat that I know who I am and that I can share that with people. Um, and like you were saying earlier, that I can share it with the students that I'm working with because then we can relate on a different level. Um, but um, that's not to say that everyone needs to use identity first language or um, that there's necessarily one right way to do it. I know other people with disabilities that prefer person first language. So I'd be saying person with disabilities instead of disabled people. Um, so I just default to that because I kind of like the idea that we could get away from thinking disability is a bad word or thinking that we have to, you know, by placing the person first in a way, it's kind of, in my mind, it feels a little bit like it's a shameful thing to be like, oh, a person with autism instead of an autistic person. Um, but there's a wide variety of what people, um, prefer and what people like to use, um, Oh, another good example is in the deaf community. A lot of the deaf community prefers identity first. Um, so it's different in every, you know, all these little mini subcultures within the disability world. Um, but I just like to mention that, that that's my current default. And really the best way to use respectful terminology is just to ask the people that you're working with um, and make sure that you're not, um, you know, you're using people's preferences for language. I, I read a lot about that on social media and people will even you know attack others uh, because they're not using identity first, but I've taught special education for 28 years and I've never once had anyone in person, you know, upset with how I addressed them. And I try to, I try to be respectful and, and use identity first, but I completely see what you just said about, I could see where you could um, interpret it. That would be a little bit offensive. So I really appreciate you saying that. I think we all should just use whatever language we want to use and just make sure that we're being respectful at all times. So how have the teaching methods for neurodivergent students evolved over time to make space for everyone, to include everyone of all um, learning abilities and differences? Yeah, so similar to terminology changes, I think that our methods are going to be changing, continue to be changing over time. Like I feel like every day we're learning about um, new modalities or new... Um, different ways that we can teach or support all of our neurodivergent students. Um, like, I don't, I feel like I remember when, um, maybe I was in college when professors were talking about how some students are visual learners and some are auditory learners. And that seems so basic and obvious now. Um, but there was a time when that wasn't very obvious and everyone, all the, it was just lecture-based st uh, style teaching all the time. Um, so I think that one example of how, um, teaching methods have evolved are to allow um, allow differences in appearance and in behavior in the classroom that doesn't necessarily mean that the student isn't focusing. So um, like stimming is a good example. Instead of redirecting a student who's maybe like rocking or um, flapping their hands a little bit while they're trying to learn a subject, um, allowing them to do that while they learn might actually be aiding in their in their comprehension of the subject. Um, and I know you know this, I've heard this on some of your podcasts too, with um, is not forcing eye contact during conversation. Um, I touched on that for a moment before. Um, but in general, just being aware of sensory differences is one huge way that we can make space for everyone to learn. I had a para one time who was very upset because the student would not sit down. He, he just wanted to pace around the room. And I'm like, if he's not interfering with anything, if he's not hurting anything, if he's not bothering anyone else he's listening, he's learning. He doesn't need to just sit in a seat and, and learn just like, like the student next to him. He is, he's taking it in and he's um, retaining it. So just let him, let him pace, let him walk. Exactly. Yep. 
That's a, that's a really good example. So what should affirming a neurodivergent student look like in a classroom setting? How do you let them know that what they're doing is okay? Because I feel like a lot of students, um, they know that they're stimming, they know that they're pacing, they, but how do you, how do you let them know that it's okay? Yeah. So I actually um, directly teach those skills. So I will have a a lesson face-to-face with either a student or a group of students, depending on, you know, what's appropriate. But I will talk to the students about their disabilities and see if we can have an open conversation about, you know, do you know what your disability is? What does that mean? Um, Say you're autistic and you are 18 years old and you're coming up to the transition program and no one's ever told you you're autistic but you've had special ed services, even self-contained, you know, very intensive programming your whole life. And no one's ever told you that you have a disability. Um, Those are the students that aren't going to understand why they stim. And they might even be trying to to mask some of their stimming or some of their other behaviors to try to appear more neurotypical. Um, So I like to just directly talk to the student. I explain what stimming is. Um, I talk about what different ways of stimming can look like. I show them my own sensory fidgets and things that I have sitting right at my desk. Um, I model using them in front of the students as well. Um, I'll model taking a break saying, you know, I'm overstimulated right now. There's too much sound and there's too much going on. I need to take a five minute break and I will leave the classroom and go do that. Um, So I'm always trying to model it and show it to my students and we have an open conversation about it. Um, So I think teaching the students about disabilities, about, um, you know, disability is not a bad word. How can we advocate for our own needs? Um, and that can be extremely basic or it could be really complicated. It depends on the student. You might be just be teaching a student to point to headphones when they need them, or it could be something much more involved. Um, so I try to focus on that. In relation to teaching students about stimming, I actually had this um, this one student I taught last year we had this discussion about stimming and about autism. And this, this young woman, she's a teenager, actually wasn't diagnosed as autistic. Um, and after our lesson, she came up to me and said, I think I'm autistic. And I was like, oh, really? You know, and, and, I, and when I really thought about it and I thought about how autism presents differently in, in females, I was like, yeah, you know, you could be. Like, that's something that a doctor has to diagnose you with. But um, if you're relating to a lot of what I'm saying, that's definitely a good reason to go talk to a doctor. Um, and then from that moment on, you should have seen her. She was, she was rocking, she was stimming, she was openly using some of her tools that she had been hiding since I had first met her. Um, and it was just shocking to me. I, I had no idea. I thought she had an intellectual disability cause that's what she came into me with. Um, but yeah. And then a year later, it turned out she, she was diagnosed as autistic. So, <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty cool. So back to when you said that, um, the students don't even know, you know, when they have a disability. That that even happens when a student is diagnosed with a learning disability. I had a conversation with our high school teachers the other day, and they're like, our kids don't even know that they have an IEP or that they are diagnosed with anything. So where does that, there's a breakdown somewhere, in, whereas in elementary school, the teacher's like, we don't want, we don't want them to feel different, so we're not going to tell them that they're different. And then when they get to high school, they know they're different. Everyone knows they're different. And so there needs to be and I feel like the work that you're doing is is awesome because there needs to be that conversation with the students at a very early age, in my opinion, about, you know, you learn different. You We all learn different. And just because you learn this way and I learn this way doesn't make it a bad thing. So I, I commend the work that you're doing, the work that you're doing with the 
transition and everything, I, I think it needs to happen even earlier than, than we're doing now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I've talked with people in my district about this because of, you know, the fact that I'm saying 18 year olds are coming up and, and I work in a fairly progressive district, um, where I feel like these conversations, if they were to happen in a school might happen in my school. Um, you know, that's not the case in every, every district. Um, but I had to meet with some of the, uh, directors for the elementary, for the elementary education teachers, because they, um, this wasn't really a conversation and really this is a piece of transition. So I think that's why I am extra passionate about it. Like you're saying, um, that it's, it should be encompassed in transition planning. So if imagine a world where kids learned about their disabilities and about other disabilities, it doesn't even have to be about them. People are learning about disabilities in general and from K to fifth grade. And then if you are attending your own IEP meeting, starting in, you know, say middle school, you would know, why you're going there, you would know what everyone's talking about, and you would be uh, participating in the meeting a little bit, even if it's just coming in, saying hi, and acknowledging that there's a meeting going on where teachers and a team is going to help talk about your goals and talk about, um, you know, what can help you out this next year. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, I'm very passionate about that as well. I've made some materials that um, can support elementary teachers um, and this, and the students actually, I make them for the students, like social narratives, things like that, about what is my IEP, what are IEP goals, why am I in this meeting, <laughs> um, and um, how can I take ownership of my own goals so that I have some autonomy and I have some some choice in what goals I'm working on during the year. I love that. I love including them in. I mean, they they are the person that we're there for. So why are they not included? And I know I've done, you know, some episodes and even created some products as well because that is so important to get them involved in the process a lot younger than we are. So if we flip the coin a little bit and start talking about neurotypical students, um, I, I feel like a student, I feel like children overall are a lot more accepting of, of differences of disabilities, but what work do you think needs to be done with neurotypical students so that they can learn to affirm another student as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that the other good piece about that is that the kids will then model it. You know, the kids are going to grow up and model it for everyone around them. Um, so yeah, if we can teach students at an early age, it would really help. Um, I I like the idea of teaching disability as part of identity because um, a lot of schools already do teach identity curriculum. I know not all do, but even if they don't, um, disability, I think, could be a whole topic. It could be a whole unit that's either taught in, you know, a health class or it could even be a cultural type activity Um, The way that we try to encompass race and ethnicity discussion throughout curriculum now, I think there's been a huge push for that in schools in the last like 10 years. Um, I think disability, that that work still needs to continue, but disability needs to be included as well. Um, And yeah, I got general education uh, teachers reaching out to me all the time, um, asking for new lessons and activities about um, that will help them talk to kids about disabilities with their students. and I think that would be cool if one day, you know, kids just knew, oh, there's lots of different neurotypes. Like, you know, everyone behaves a little differently, thinks a little differently, learns a little differently. And if that were the case, I think there'd be a lot less masking. Um, there'd be a lot less depression and anxiety in students and in adults. Um, and more more people would get diagnosed to receive intervention at an earlier age. Um, so I think that would be really great. Yeah, that would be amazing to see everyone being accepting of everyone else. So. Mm-hmm. The, the last piece that I want to touch on is, is are the paraprofessionals. I think there's such a 
big piece of this puzzle. So how can special education teachers assist those paraprofessionals, those teachers assistants in learning about affirming these practices as well? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, I know in my classroom, the paras do a ton of the teaching. Sometimes I feel like they're teaching even more than me. Um, And so I always try to do a training with paras before the school year starts. Or if I get a para mid-year, I do a brief training just about um, what disability is, how disability is not a bad word, um, just in case they haven't been introduced to any of these topics, um, what stimming looks like, um, why we don't interfere with stimming or force eye contact, um, how students will learn different paces and in different methods. And like you were saying before with, um, you know, students pacing in a classroom, if, you know, unless the teacher says otherwise, or we're trying to work on something specific and it's not interfering with everything, you know, let them do it. Let them do whatever it is that will help them learn in their best way. Um, So I think it's important just to train paras to model for them. Um, And I know I wish I'd been taught this information earlier in my career. I was a para for a couple of years. And because I was taught in a pretty different way than that, um, I definitely began my teaching career in a different way than I think I would have now. Well, Lane, this has been so interesting to learn about, and I hope that my listeners have gained some knowledge into how to do better when it comes to working with neurodiversity. I think that when we become aware of some of the habits that we've formed, we can be more intentional and more respectful with our words and our behaviors. So I really appreciate you sharing this with us. Thank you so much. So how else can we learn from you? I know that you have a TPT store and that you create products for transition. Do you have any like freebies or is there a way that we can connect with you to learn more from you? Um, yeah, I, I have a lot of freebies about neurodiversity in particular because um, I'm so passionate about it and I want everyone to have access to those types of materials. Um, so that's on my TPT store. I also have an email list where I share freebies. Um, and then I'm transition abilities on social medias like Facebook and Instagram. Um, Oh, and I have a YouTube channel actually where I'm starting to make, um, they're like cartoon, um, (laughs) they're like cartoon videos that are age appropriate um, just because I find a lot of my students can focus better when it's a cartoon version, Um, but they're age appropriate for teenagers. Um, And I'm trying to build a, uh, I'm trying to build a YouTube channel with videos that model different facets of neurodiversity social skills in a neurodiversity affirming way, which is tricky. Um, so yeah, you could find me on, on there as well. Well, I will put the links to all of those things in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Thank you so much. Thanks for sticking with me until the end. I can tell that you are just as dedicated to the field of special education as I am. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love it if you'd head over to spedprepacademy.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs. Go out and have an amazing day and I'll catch you on the next episode.